Hello and welcome to the Game Theory Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Ficini. We're presented by CLNS Media. Today on the show, Coles Wicker, he's here. We're going to talk about Game 5 of the Finals. We're going to talk Kevin Durant, because everyone has to have a Kevin Durant take today, right, Cole? Apparently, that is the case. I am more reserved than most of Twitter. No. But every, everybody has a take. <laughs> um, and then we're going to do 20 through 11 on my personal big board. Uh, Cole, generally, how are you doing? Is everything good? Everything's good. I actually watched the women's national team soccer team today. I rarely travel outside of basketball in general. And when I do, it's usually NFL. But I definitely I always watch the women's team in the World Cup. So that 13 to zero shellacking was pretty awesome. Megan Rapino is our queen. Uh, that is the only statement that I have there. I got to <laughs> go out and I did a double feature on Saturday. I did uh, Secret Life of Pets 2 followed by Booksmart. So I'm feeling great. Like, uh, Booksmart was exceptional, like everyone has said. Like I am at the point where I want Billy Lord to be in every single movie for the rest of my life. Uh, and then additionally, oh, uh, Secret Life of Pets is just adorable. I, I love <laughs> everything about those movies. There you go, man. I have nothing to add to this conversation further. <laughs> so let's talk about uh, something that wasn't so warm and bubbly and uh, enjoyable to watch. And that was game five of the NBA finals. The Warriors win 106-105. They lose Kevin Durant. I mean, we haven't had official word yet. Um, everyone seems to think that it is a torn Achilles. So I guess that we can just kind of roll with that, right? That seems to be the popular consensus as far as what it is, and it's just so deflating. I tweeted yesterday, and I feel like a total asshole. I was like, this is the kind of game at the beginning when everybody was making threes. We saw Durant on the floor making shots. It's like, this is the game you're going to remember where you were when you watched it. And then it kind of ended up being that for every reason that I'd never want it to be. I mean, last night changed the NBA. Like, that's just the way it goes. Um, Yeah, Laura looked at me because we watched. So (laughs) I I went out. We went to a bar. Um, I was out with Titus and Tate, uh, one of the guys that works at the ringer and Laura and I went out and hilariously, there were like multiple NBA players at the bar that we were at, uh, just cause of course it's LA, it's Hollywood and people were out. Um, Laura and I left at the end of the third quarter because that's not my scene. <laughs> like, let's, let's just be honest. I am not cool enough for that. Uh, and we came home and then we watched the fourth quarter. And we watched the press conferences after and we watched Bob Myers' press conference and everyone seemed so deflated. And, um, you know, Laura just like eventually looked at me and was like, you look incredibly sad right now. I was like, yeah, like this is a huge bummer. This everything that just happened tonight is incredibly sad. Like it was an unbelievable game. We got to see the amazing Tano Kawhi run followed by the amazing Nino Splash Brothers run. But it was just a huge, huge bummer that like really put a damper on what has been in many ways just a very fascinating season yeah there are so so many storylines of course in this game the hype level in the first opening minutes just the how magnetic it was and the stakes at play was just incredible the warriors are the backs against the wall durant back and uh it was a great game and i, I think that you know a lot of it was overshadowed of course and rightfully so by durant because i think people i mean some people are just out to to condemn the warriors and the decision making process or whatnot but for me personally like i just felt like empathy towards durant as a guy who 
not only selfishly do I love watching play basketball, but I've always had a tie with him due to, as, as far as like a fan, just with his affiliation with the city of Seattle and right. his support for that. So it, it was just kind of tough, man. You, you realize this guy loves playing basketball, and you could kind of tell it was something was very off right when it happened. Um, There's all the, the videos on Twitter saying this could be an Achilles or whatnot, and you just felt so... You just felt fucking bad for him, man. And I mean, it's not just the people pointed at the money. I think he's going to be fine financially. For me, it is like this guy might not play basketball for a year. And and that sucks. There's like a very weird. There's a lot of it that's very gross to me as well. Um, Let's start with the fact that uh, Kevin Durant, like there were people out there questioning, is Kevin Durant hurt? Uh, is uh, is this legit? Is he serious about this? And I think it's ridiculous. Like anyone, anyone who knew anything about this injury said, "Hey, this is probably a seven-week injury." Like, can go back through any time that like a calf strain like this has happened, or whatever it was in uh, like you know injury history. Like, it tends to be like a seven-week injury. Like JJ Barea uh, missed quite a bit of time with this injury. Um, so th- th- that's what I've been saying on this podcast. Like I said it last time with you, I said it in the last podcast with Dieter. Like this, I-, I was surprised on some level that Kevin Durant was going to play. And I also wasn't surprised because I thought that he was as committed to his legacy and, you know, this team as well as possible. And I thought that like he would really want to be out there. Uh, as soon as he could to play because everything we know about Kevin Durant says that this guy is just an unbelievable competitor who likes to play basketball. I don't think that he was going to like quit based off of that. So there's that, that part of it is super gross. People stop questioning injuries. Uh, The general public, I would implore to stop uh, also deifying people in making it a thing that you're supposed to do uh, and play through injury from an athletic perspective. Like if you want to do it, that's fine. Um, I'm you know not going to say like, like I saw Richard Sherman earlier tweet, like, you know, like there was any way that they w- could have kept Kevin Durant off of that floor. Um, you know, that's probably true on some level. Uh, I'm sure that Durant wanted with everything to be out there. But the idea behind this is that trainers have to save athletes from themselves in a very real way. And I think that um, on some level, people just, you know, expect athletes to rush back, rush back and get back, you know, sometimes before they're ready. And uh, I think that's kind of gross, I guess. Like, does that make sense? Like, is what I'm saying even making sense right now? Like, I, I just, I don't like the culture of, um, you know, saying that people have to play through injury. And I thought it was very uh, ironic in a lot of ways that this happened when Kawhi Leonard was on the other side and Kawhi got kind of raked through the coals last year for not playing through whatever was going on with Kawhi. And, you know, I think that right now what we're seeing is that it was good that Kawhi didn't play. Yeah, I totally agree with you. The culture systemically of just expecting athletes to play through these conditions and associating it with some kind of heroism. And it's just that shouldn't be the way these guys are viewed. I mean, that's it's okay to be tough. And I this is a complex issue. It's not something that's simple. You have the you have the agency of the player. Like, I want to give Kevin Durant credit for being like, I'm going to play. 
Like that's his choice. You have that to part give of it's him, great. Yes, you have to give him some kind of credit for that and not treat him like a lot of people were as some kind of lemming being like, oh, he's going to be pressured into playing. Like maybe there were comments made by teammates or whatnot, but I'm not going to sit here and strip Kevin Durant of his choice to play. I, I think that you have to give him not necessarily even the positive credit for it. If you don't want to just say like he made the choice. It, it was he partook in it. But I think right. from a fan's angle, expecting athletes to be these like heroic figures and then condemning them when they're not and saying like, oh, you are you're soft when you don't <laughs> play with like a knee injury or a, a foot injury. That's just it's pretty unfair. And honestly, it's a lot of this hot take culture where you have these icons in the past guys, you know, in the 80s and the 90s who just went regardless. You had guys like Kobe who were going to play through basically anything and credit to them. That doesn't have to be every single athlete. That shouldn't be the status quo of what we expect. So I think the next thing that I want to bring up is I do think to an extent the Warriors role in this needs to be discussed. Um, I don't know if they were at fault or not, but like I think that there should be a real look to see if the Warriors were at fault or not, especially given that Rachel Nichols reported that there was, um, you know, they, they told Kevin apparently that like he couldn't hurt it worse. Like that's that's something that she said, right? Like I'm not making that up. Yes, I saw that last night on Twitter. So like given that and given just generally the fact that, you know, it seems like Kevin played before what a lot of people like kind of at least on the NBA like team side told me was um, the typical recovery period for an injury like this. And look, like I didn't look at Kevin Durant's calf and I don't think anything at all was malicious on the Warriors part. And I don't think like, you know, we're looking at a situation where like people should think the Warriors like push this dude uh, in a like gross way to come back or anything like that. But the reality of the matter is that there is a big gray area between often what team doctors say should say can happen in regard to clearance and what other doctors say. Right. And you see that with like, there were athletes last night that came out with their own stories, like Damian Woody and uh, Emmanuel Acho. Like both those guys had like threads on how team doctors, you know, cleared them a little bit before they felt like they were ready. And I've heard of other examples uh, in just this morning of that happening. So again, I think that we need to look at it more from what are the incentives here as opposed to what, uh, what is best for the athlete. And I think like the best solution for this is there should be like a group. The NBA makes billions upon billions of dollars. They should hire a group of doctors that is, that clears athletes across the NBA. Basically like you have 10 doctors or maybe it's 30, maybe it's like an NBA designated representative. That's a doctor that is responsible for clearing athletes across the NBA. And they don't answer to the warriors. They are not the warriors um, ownership. Like they are not paid by the Warriors. They are paid by the league. And those doctors are the people that have to clear a player before they are capable of playing. Does that make sense? It absolutely does. I'm in alignment with everything you've said as far as I think it should be explored more what the situation was, what the, the decision-making process was here. My, my slight is more just against the immediate condemnation from everyone on Twitter without any kind of intricate facts, without outside of some of the rumors about 
teammates peer pressuring and whatnot just do an investigation and actually reach some kind of conclusion before we jump to you know bob myers being a fucking terrible dude you know what i mean like i just think we need to be a little bit more reserved in how we react to things at times but i totally agree with the sentiment and i, I do agree that teams owe athletes a duty of care and the league does as well sometimes you're gonna have to save a player from themselves i don't want to make this analogous to concussion protocol in the nfl but it kind of is the same thing you got to hold those guys out of the game if they try to run back on the field when they can't so Again, it's a very, very complex situation that has multiple variables at play, multiple different perspectives. It's probably not just, in my opinion, it's in this instance, it's not just one person's fault. It's it's a situation that was highly unfortunate. Maybe we can do a better job with better information, a better process in the future. I, I just don't like the angle of always having to blame somebody for something immediately. Yeah. And like, I, I don't mean to do that when I say that there should be, and I don't, I don't think that you mean that like it should, but I do think that we should look at this from all angles and figure out what happened here, basically. Um, yes. Like I, that's, that's just the number one thing here. And we need to find a way to make sure that this doesn't happen again. Like the, I thought it was weird that this happened uh, on a court with Kawhi Leonard after what happened last year with Kawhi. Um, you know, in regard, like, do we have anything else we want to say about Durant? Like, I found it also, like, just weird that, like, everyone, like, seems to be on Kevin Durant's side for the first time on something. Um, Kevin has gone the last, what, few years, realistically, since Oklahoma City, like, he was universally loved in Oklahoma City, and since he's been at Golden State, like he's been incredibly polarizing. Uh, I find it very noteworthy that it took him being forced to play through injury—not forced, like I, sh- I shouldn't—I should rephrase that. Like it took Kevin Durant playing through injury and injuring himself even further to get the kind of um, acclim- acclamation—not acclamation, but like acclaim—that. Uh, he seems to care about. I mean, just based off the fact that like he wants, uh, seems like he wants to be liked. He cares about being liked on some level. And it's just like a very weird, uh, weird thing just because like he's been so polarizing and people have uh, complained about Kevin Durant's habits across everything. And it took this injury for him, for everyone to get on his side. Like I, I don't really like that aspect of it, I guess. And like, look, like I've said some, like, I'm, I guess I've been more positive. Like, I, I've said, like, you know, Kevin Durant should do whatever makes Kevin Durant happy has typically been my stance on it. Um, but it's just a little bit weird to me that, like, this is what it seems to have taken. And I don't like that aspect of it. And I think that it says a lot about the culture of the way that we think about athletes, that this is, you know, the event that it took. For people to be like, oh, Kevin Durant is, um, we, we should all like Kevin Durant, basically. It's almost tragic, honestly. Yeah, it's, it is. It re- that's the best word like, for it. Like, tomorrow, let's say the Warriors, let's say Durant doesn't play in Game 5 and the Warriors lose. What's the narrative? Like, people, some people are going to be calling into question, like, Durant's toughness, his ability to play through injuries. Did he just take a pass? Does he want out of Golden State? Is he going to New York? Is he already planning you know what I mean? Like, there's going to be so many other storylines here, and it took him getting injured to really empathize with him, which is, yeah, I, I couldn't agree with basically anything you've said more than the way you put it. So it's it, it just sucks. Today, like, the best action I can display is 
I'm sad. And I think like, I can't sit here and say like Bob Myers. I don't know him personally, but everything I've heard about him is he's a he's a really good dude. And people coming after him last night for that conference. I don't know. I, I'm not inside his mind. I don't know what he's thinking. But that dude was disjointed last night. Have you ever heard an executive talk like that before? I, I said, uh, I don't know if I said this on Twitter or not, but I said it to Laura. I was like, I have never heard of a general manager coming out for a post-game, like, full-on press conference like that. You know what I mean? Let alone um, one that displayed how distraught he was about the entire thing. Like, again, I don't think anyone can ascribe malicious intent to anything that the Warriors did here or that Bob Myers did, but... I do think people should look to see if there was maybe like a little bit of negligence at the end of the yes, day. Yes, absolutely. But I think how we absorb information is just a systemic problem. So you see the tweet about Steve Kerr saying, oh, consult Bob Myers on this or something. And it made it seem like there was some disassociation between those two on this. But maybe Bob Myers is like, let me handle this. I'm going to go up there. I'm going to have a press conference. I'm going to speak to these yeah. guys. I'm going I, to I think that that's exactly what happened. Yeah. Right. So I think that's, again, a framing issue and just how we absorb information in the moment, especially on Twitter, where everybody wants to have a take. And it was just honestly, this might sound like super soapboxy, but the reactions last night I just thought were kind of disappointing. Yeah. Yeah. It was just like it's just all very sad. I'm I'm just bummed by the whole Kevin Durant thing. Um, Game five in general. I mean this genuinely. I think Kevin Durant swung game five. And I don't mean like in light of his injury. I think that the 12 minutes Kevin Durant played last night swung game five. Uh, he was awesome, obviously. He scored 11 points in those 12 minutes. But more than that, uh, the difference between those 12 minutes was basically 12 minutes that the team did not have to play Alfonso McKinney, Andrew Bogut, or Jordan Bell. And that is a huge win. For Golden State. Golden State was plus six in Kevin Durant's 12 minutes. I think it stands pretty easily to reason that they would have been um, in a much different position replacing Kevin Durant with Alfonso McKinney, Andrew Bogut, or Jordan Bell. Um, that's what makes me, uh, above anything else, in the fact that like they had an aberrantly hot shooting night even by their standards, uh, that's what makes me hesitant about picking the Warriors going forward. Um, I have a future bet on Golden State after Kevin Durant uh, came back. I just figured I would go down with the ship. I don't feel great about that at all. So uh, I I think it's going to be trouble for them to win two games in a row with the roster that they have. Yeah, I mean, I I agree with those Durant minutes, his ability to make threes and really just warp the floor. Having another shooter out there freed Stephen Curry, who got off to a hot start as well. It really just opened up the game for the rest of the players. And we haven't seen that space because nobody has that kind of gravity. Like Durant couldn't really even move very well. Like he wasn't changing directions, but he could still shoot the hell out of the ball. Like he's, he's always a threat out there. He always has gravity. So I really did think he changed. He definitely changed how the dynamics of the game in those minutes that he played. Of course, the smart way to look at this is, I mean, the Warriors were 20 of 42 from three last night. The Raptors were eight of 32. So are the Warriors going to shoot that well again? They could. It's the Warriors, right? But is that the smart bet? And they only won by one point. So I, it's hard to really sit here with my mind and say, like, the Warriors have a legitimate shot here as far as them being, like, the heavy favorites. I think the Raptors have, frankly, outplayed the Warriors in this series. And it's not just the Warriors. I think the Warriors have been not to their caliber as far as decision-making goes, especially defensively. But the Raptors have been affirmatively very good. Um, last night, 
Kawhi Leonard wasn't great. Um, Kyle Lowry got a ton of shit at the end of the game. I thought kind of unjustifiably so. The pick and roll read was horrendous when he had that live ball turnover on the kick out to Gasol. He, he had Gasol the entire play. Didn't make the pass. That was bad. But I, I, you have to give the Warriors some credit last night at least. I mean, their resolve in that moment, considering Durant, but also considering their backs are against the wall, played through the final whistle. Draymond, I don't know if you want to talk about this, but Draymond's play at the end of the game defensively was just unbelievable. fucking unbelievable. Unbelievable. How does he recover out to Kyle Lowry to get a piece of that ball? He is, he's something else, man. That guy is a Hall of Famer. Like, I, I get that people want to, you know, complain about the fact that Draymond Green gets more latitude with officials than I think anyone I've ever seen with officials. But <laughs> God damn, that guy can play basketball. Yeah, it was the closeout was absolutely textbook to Lowry shooting hand side so he wouldn't foul reaching across getting a piece of it. But it was the pre-play too. It was like before that fighting over Gasol screen, not letting Gasol screen him staying on the outside, the high side of the screen. So he was basically guarding two guys at once. He was guarding Gasol in the post. He was still trying to screen him the opposite way. Gasol's play on that was a little weird. I thought he should have yeah, I, a lot of people pointed this out when I posted this. Um, clip he should have just dove to the rim and, and put pressure even more pressure on Draymond but Draymond's positioning he was in perfect position to guard two guys on the weak side it was like it was textbook Draymond yeah he, he is exceptional um I'm trying to think what else stood out I mean Clay and Steph were exceptional Cl- Stephen Curry has not gotten nearly enough credit just for his role in this series I, I mean Stephen Curry is averaging like 31 6 and 5 and he's doing it I think he's shooting like 42% from three. I think Clay is shooting like 50% from three in the series. Both of those guys have been just incredibly, unbelievably good. They're, they and Draymond Green's defense are really the only things that like have kept Golden State around. And like, I guess you can also say like DeMarcus Cousins with that quick seven point burst uh, early on in the post Kevin Durant uh, game five run. But like DeMarcus also causes some issues we will say on defense um i don't think that they win the game last night without demarcus cousins just straight up because of that run you ever think he had 14 and 6 in 20 minutes like he had a really good offensive night a lot of what happened late in the game portended bigger problems down the road like what happened in game three and four with him but i don't think they win the game without him like he was good yeah i mean that stint right when Durant got injured he looked a little better agility wise not on defense but on offense as far as absorbing contact was able to finish a couple plays he's had no lift at all to me he looked a little bit bouncier like he had some juice and his ability to finish those plays were huge because i mean they had to go to him for offense that's why kerr did it and his ability to deliver there any kind of advantage on the margins they can get in this series they have to have and i think cousins at this point he's not really on the margins like they need him to do some things when he's in the game they need some kind of self-creation like the passing we've seen earlier in the series looney did not look right changing directions last night. He's really trying to tough it out. Um, so hopefully, you know, he can return the next game because I need his space defense to be able to switch a little bit more. I thought Iguodala, I mean, his offense, he's going to get killed for that just because so many possessions are ending in ball swings and either Draymond not wanting to take a three or Iguodala trying to put the ball on the floor and like take these awkward pull-ups. But his defense, I thought last night, in the, especially in the third quarter, was incredible. Like he straight up took the ball away from Kawhi twice. And Kawhi was just running through everybody. He was just literally lining people up and running through them because you just can't contain his strength. And Iguodala, I've never, I don't think I've ever seen a player literally just rip the ball away from Kawhi Leonard. It just doesn't happen. So 
he was credited with four blocks. I think three of those were actually really steals on the swipes. He had one additional steal, and they had a closeout block. I think his performance in the series is going a little bit underrated just because of the offensive shortcomings. Yeah, Iguodala has been awesome defensively. Um, this team, just the way that they're fighting in the series, they're outmanned, I think, pretty yep. substantially just because of injury. Like, Clay Thompson, look... You can't pull up lame with a hamstring and be 100% healed in a week, right? Like Clay Thompson is, like since game two. That guy is, uh, he's been exceptional despite playing injured. DeMarcus Cousins clearly is not right. Andre Iguodala, I don't think is right. I think he's hurt. Um, Agreed. You know, Kevon Looney is hurt. Kevin Durant, you know, obviously just is hurt right now. It is unbelievable how tough these guys are fighting Uh, to try and win the series. And like, I didn't think it was possible, but it feels like Golden State is the underdog that people are now rooting for. Like, it's kind of crazy, man. It's insane and bizarre. And I love every bit of it. I am 100% here for it. Um, Yeah, I'm I'm just excited. I'm I'm excited to see where all of this goes. Basically, I I don't know where it's going to go. But uh, I mean, my, my guess would probably be that they lose game six. But I'm just not, I mean, I'm like you now, I'm just not going to rule out the Warriors at this stage. Yeah, and it's the resolve, and I just hope the Warriors play a more heady game. Like, even in Game 5, I thought there was a lot of bad fouls that they committed, like not going vertical, and they've had so many lapses in this series, especially defensively. They were a little bit better defensively last night, but I think some of that was a function of Kawhi just not being Kawhi for all of can we one. talk about just like transition defense being a total dumpster fire in every way still? Yeah, absolutely. Take it away. Like <laughs> they they just aren't getting back and when they are getting back, they're just like not picking up the right shooters, the right ball handlers or anything. Like I don't really know at this stage. Like I feel like in game 100 or whatever they've played so far this year is probably more than that. That's not really something you can fix. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's just kind of surprising to me, honestly. That's the, that's the part I undersold the most about this series was, you know, the Warriors are always going to have moments where they're careless and they commit turnovers. Like Draymond's going to press and make decisions he shouldn't at times. But I didn't expect them to play at times without the kind of execution from an intelligence standpoint. It was funny. Like even last night, I thought Stephen Curry dribbling the ball looked pretty tentative. And it was weird to see. It's just a different dynamic with this series. But again, you see these guys come up big in big moments. I'm very fascinated to see in this high leverage situation. Don't take any of this for granted as far as what we're seeing on the floor. It's going to I think it's going to go seven. I think the Warriors will find out enough. They'll, they'll find enough to win game six. But honestly, like the Raptors should be the favorites at this juncture. I mean, they, the personnel advantage is considerable. What did you think about really quick Nurse's decision to I, I, Siakam didn't close the game last night, did he? It was actually Norman Powell, correct? Nick Nurse made a lot of weird decisions last night that were very un-Nick Nursey from what we've seen from him in this series so far. And I don't really know yeah. uh, what to make of them. Like the timeout when Kawhi was on his 10-0 run was very yep. weird. Um, the closing lineup was weird. Like there, there was just a lot of strange decisions there that I don't think will happen again. You know what I mean? Like I just think that that was a that was a fuck up that just isn't gonna happen again yeah i I think i would lean that way too it's just kind of interesting to see did they did he just ride out the wave with powell's on the floor with Kawhi's run or what like what was the dynamic there Uh, siakam was not shooting well he was not having any kind of gravity i think he he missed all four of his three-point shots but i I just found it kind of curious at the end of the game 
Yeah, I agree with you. Um, all right. I guess that we're... Do you have anything else you want to talk about with Game 5? I just want to say one last thing. Just to, to say the Lowry porn again, Like that's another example of people taking a narrative from the past, a preconceived notion of Lowry coming up short. And Lowry's been awesome in this series. Like He's been the smartest player on the floor. He's been executing at such a high uh, level. He fu- uh, who, Kyle's, who been good. I, Kyle's been good the last three games, I would say. He was pretty bad in fair. games one and two. I didn't think he was bad. I, I think even when he's not scoring or contributing that way, his decision-making has still been pretty awesome. And I think just the way he executed, especially in Golden State, was just incredible. Like, he's... I thought he was really the difference in those settings, so I don't know. Um, he does, he helps them by being out there, like no doubt. He helps them by being out there. Yeah, I just, I don't know. I just feel like I, I hate that narrative because, again, like Draymond blocked the final shot, and I, I get that's that's what people see last. He missed an open catch and shoot three towards the end. He should have probably made because I think the Warriors blew a switch and, and made another mistake, but uh, I think he's been largely awesome, so I, I don't really agree with the narrative. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. Like, obviously, that ball got blocked. We know that now. And I don't really love that, like, people are like, oh, Kyle Lowry, I mean, he did it again, folks. He missed this shot again. Like, that stuff's bullshit, and I agree <laughs> with you. Um, I-, I hope that it doesn't happen more often. Kyle Lowry's been an all-star player for five years in a row now, and I think that he doesn't get treated with that level of respect. And just with the way that he has gone about his career to this point, like, this was a journeyman until he got to Toronto and he's made himself into an all-star. Like that is something that I have just an incredible amount of respect for. And I think that often people don't have that same level of respect for just athletes. Maybe, I don't know. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm getting on my high horse now. Yeah. I'm going to get off mine. That was just my final note. Um, I was excited to see the rest of the series. All right, let's jump into draft prospects. Uh, we've gone 30 minutes on that. So let's uh, let's talk about NBA draft prospects. Numbers 20 through 11, we're going to run through here. Uh, number 20 is P.J. Washington out of Kentucky. I think um, probably a little bit low on P.J. in comparison to even the general public as well as um, NBA teams, to be sure. Uh, what is your initial reaction to me having P.J. Washington at 20? I mean, it depends on what your philosophy on the draft is. Like, I mean, what do, what do you... What's the weaknesses that you're really worried about? Because I think he has a pretty damn high floor. I'm not really buying the ceiling to an extent, but in this class, like I, I think he has a very translatable NBA skill set. So I agree that he has a translatable skill set. My concerns are, do we know how good of a shooter he is? I feel pretty confident with the off-the-catch stuff. I mean, the sample size isn't great, but the improvement from year one to year two at Kentucky, how confident he looked off-the-catch... Um, the percentage he shot this year, I'm not as concerned about the percentage because, you know, the free throw concerns, but I do kind of buy the touch, like his touch on like jump hooks is incredible. So I think, good, like, yeah, yeah, I think that he's a better shooter than his free throw numbers indicate. Is he like an elite shooter? I don't think so. But is he like a very capable stretch four type? I, I think he is. I think he has potential to be that. Yes. Uh, but at the end of the day with PJ, I think, I mean, what, what is his upside? Like, I feel like his most likely outcome is like mid-career Patrick Patterson, who was useful to be sure. Uh, he was solid defensively. PJ, I have like some small lateral quickness concerns and I have some uh, just general like feel concerns on defense. He's not, he's not a bad defender. I, I don't mean to paint it like that, but like he is... Maybe not a plus defender in the way that I think he needs to be a plus defender uh, in addition to the 
somewhat limited offensive role that I think he's going to have. Um, like he, he's going to need to find a way to derive value on defense in a way that I haven't seen from him yet. Basically, I'm with basically all that. I think the the gap here. I have him ten right now, and I think the gap is the rest of the players. <laughs> it's that, what you're that saying. utterly shocks me that you have him at ten because he yeah, is not just, your kind of guy. Not really. No, not I. Why I like him and why I started to buy into him is I do like the passing a lot. And he really improved as a passer. And his ability on like the short roll, for example, I do think he can excel there. He, he showed a lot of proclivity out of the post, get passes. I think he processes the game quickly enough on the move. So if you put him in a system that he's a short roll guy and he can make plays out of the situations, I think he can function there. That's when you're probably getting the highest level of, of his production but i also think i feel pretty good about his jump shot off the catch so again i think there's a projectable role for him agree with everything you said about defense i think the lateral quickness uh, is pretty overrated he does get beat more than you'd like for someone that size i think he's pretty fast so like when he can recover and like sprint like he can cover ground as a weak side guy i kind of like him a little bit there but the motor level and like the overall feel defensively as a team defender i think is more fine than than i than it is like i feel confident about it yeah and like at the end of the day he's a we think of him as like a combo four five right so i just feel like there he is probably going to be the fourth best guy on the court or worse just about every time he's on the court right like in terms of offensive value would you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, value is a complex issue, but I, I get what you're getting at. Like, I, I think, again, we're in the same place as far as this goes, but it just comes down to the other players and how confident I am in right. them, which is not high. Yeah, And, like, I think that PJ is probably going to play, like, 10 years in the NBA. I think that he has value, and I think he's going to be a long-term vet. I just don't know if there's enough upside uh, at the position that he plays for me to think I should take him over Romeo Langford or Nikhil Alexander Walker. You know what I mean? Yeah. I just don't buy really the upside of those other two guys. We'll get to them in a second. I, I just think PJ's realistic outcome is more useful than those players. I really do think he's situationally dependent. Like a lot of these guys are, I mean, he can space the floor. I think I'm oh, relatively confident again in that, but Again, if he falls to, he's not going to fall to Portland, but if he plays next to Dame Lillard and he's the short roll guy, I, I think that's where you really get that high level value. Because I am pretty comfortable with him making decisions in those situations with his passing acumen. He's coordinated enough to put it on the floor, and I like his touch. So that's kind of the role I see him in. I'm not sure if he's going to be in that role, though. Yeah, like I think that he's he's just fine at everything. You know what I mean? Like he's not. I don't think he's going to be an elite shooter. Do you? No, I don't think so. Like I don't think he's going to be an elite short roll guy. Do you? Uh, probably not elite, but I definitely think possibly sub elite um, at his highest outcome, but probably not fully elite. Not going to be a elite defender for sure, right? No, more you're looking for more of a positive defender than I don't think he's going to be an impact defensive player. So I, I just like wonder, I think he's someone that can definitely play in the NBA. And I think he's someone that you can have on the floor. And seriously, like, I think there's a real chance he makes $50 million in his career because of it. And I would love for that to happen for him. But like, I, I just don't know what the like super upside is here of all of it, I guess. Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, again, I, what we talked about with functional strength too, I, I like his frame. I like his ability to play against yeah. multiple players. So I buy him in a playoff setting a little bit more. So I give him a bump for that compared to like smaller 
wing types or combo guard types who I don't really think can hang. So I give PJ a bump just because I feel like he can be a 16-game player. Do I think he's going to be an impact 16-game player? I don't, but I don't think there are (laughs) many of those in this class. Yeah, I think that's reasonable. I actually really think that's reasonable that he could be a 16-game player. Um, Because like you can also potentially play him at the 5 because of the strength level and use him that way. So I think that is the upside there. But the upside for me is just like, okay, I'm, I'm going to take him at 20 if I want to take him. You know what I mean? Fair enough. Um, all right. Number 19 is Romeo Langford. So I think Romeo is one of the most difficult evaluations in this class. Would you agree? I mean, what the fuck do we do about the shooting? How much do you really buy the medical reports and how much do you think that him being injured in a shooting hand influences shooting this year? I think that it's impossible for it not to have impacted it. I just wonder substantially if I just think I think there are also other factors involved in why he struggles to shoot the ball because he's never been like an impact shooter at any level. Uh, he could sometimes he can get to his pull up, but he's also not a guy that is going to like knock down shots at a 38% clip from three. There are two issues. Uh, do you want, I'll let you jump into the shooting because I know that you have concerns about like the mechanics on his jump shot as well. Yeah. I think first of all, I think he's more of a shot maker than he is a real shooter. Like he, like you noted in high school, he was more of like, he could shoot with backward momentum. Some he could shoot off the dribble, but I don't buy it as being like a high level shooter. It's more like he can make those shots. Mechanically, we've talked about his wrist in the past as far as how far back he keels it. I think there's got to be a lot of tension in his, in his shot. I don't know how much it influenced as far as the injury compared to the mechanics and what the percentage of the result was this year as far as his three-point shooting. All I know is that if you're wide open from a cor- from the corner and you have an easy catch-and-look shot, catch and shoot look and you hit the side of the backboard though that isn't something that shooters do when they're not under duress like real shooters so i do think there's mechanical inconsistency there is it the same delivery every time it's tough to say he's much he, to me he's much more comfortable like you said shooting off the dribble than he is off the catch and that gives me some pause just because i think a lot of his shots are going to come off the catch i agree with you uh the other thing that concerns me particularly off the catch is that he loads into his jumper in regard to his footwork differently uh, consistently. Sometimes he goes light or left-right pull. Sometimes lands with the right, goes in with the left, and pulls the jump shot. That stuff and that footwork inconsistency, it's fixable. It's just also going to take time. And I wonder if it is worth investing the time in that at the end of the day. Yeah, I agree with that. And I tend to think like shot preparation and footwork is more improvable to a certain extent than how extreme Romeo's wrist is. Like I'm more concerned with that element of his mechanics and like consistent delivery, even though I do buy the touch to an extent, I'm, I'm more concerned with that than I am the footwork. I think guys tend to improve on that over time. Is he going to be like an off movement shooter at a high level? Like that's a different question entirely, but off the catch, I feel like players do make improvements there. Um, what about the rest of his game? So I like the fact that he can handle and change pace as a handler. I like the fact that he's a good finisher around the basket. Uh, defensively i thought he actually was pretty underrated this year i thought he was solid defensively for indiana which was something i was not expecting coming out of high school because he was awful in aau like he he did not care at all and i think part of it was like an accountability issue like the team was literally named 22 vision because romeo langford's number was 22 and like he is just not there there was nothing that he was 
asked to do there. He was the scoring guy. So the fact that he played defense at an above average level this year on the wing, uh, used his feet well, used, I think, his underrated strength level pretty well. That stuff bodes well for me at the next level, I think. Yeah, I get why you say that. I'm a little. I was higher on his on-ball defense than his off-ball defense this year. Yes, I think on I agree ball, with that he, too. The strength was good. Um, he's not super twitchy, but I thought he hung well enough to have a little bit of optimism. I'm not really sure if he's going to be like this dynamic, contained defender, but I, I do like the strength, like you said. Like yeah. I, one play, I, I legit hard. can't emphasize this enough. Romeo Langford was a disaster defender at <laughs> AAU levels. He was awful. The fact that he showed like a high level of competence on the ball defensively was a surprise to me, to say the least. Yeah, absolutely. Working with that prior, I can certainly understand that. As an off-ball guy, I thought he got back cut a lot. His motor was pretty inconsistent. Pretty typical freshman stuff, but he didn't make enough. He, I thought he did improve a little bit off the ball as the season progressed, but not to a level that would suggest like high-level development and accelerated development. But offensively, I mean, what is his role really? Is he going to be? I, I think his handle's underrated as far as control. Like he can get low at the ball. I don't think he has any kind of deception to his game, though. Like as far as like he's not explosive in and out of his moves. He can change pace a little bit, but again, it's not very deceptive. I think he relies so much on his body to create separation. Like he's constantly running into guys, and he just runs through you. And you know, RJ does that too, but RJ's much more athletic than he is. Yeah, and he's he's a better first step. He's stronger. Like RJ can actually get away with it at the next level. I think Romeo's yes. change of pace is a little bit better than you do. Um, I don't think it's great by any stretch, uh, by NBA standards. And I think the big problem with Romeo is that he has no change of direction to play off of it. You know what I mean? Like it's all you know, straight line change pace as opposed to uh, you know being able to go, go right to left crossover blow by burst. That stuff is concerning, I think. Yeah, and that's kind of more what I'm alluding to is more of like the shake and like the deceptiveness, the lateral burst and stuff like that. You just don't have a lot of it. If he had the threat of his shot, if he was like a dynamic pull-up shooter, I I think I would buy it a little bit more. I like him in matchups where he can overwhelm smaller guards. I think that's where he's always been best is when he can just, you know, attack in a straight line, run into you, finish over the top with touch. That's usually what he's done the best at i just don't know how well that translates to the nba when he won't have these same physical advantages yeah uh i I, like the role here i think is he figures out how to shoot at a 35 percent clip can become a 6-6 wing with a 6-11 wingspan who can defend at a reasonable level and uh create some offense off the bounce and be like a smart passer right this stuff is valuable at the next level if it translates um it's exceedingly valuable if it translates to the next level like if, if he gets a jump shot and like has a jump shot romeo langford is like an unquestioned lottery talent right like if we think romeo langford can hit 36 percent from three he's lottery right I mean, he's got a pretty good case for it, especially in this class. So I I can understand that. I guess, I don't know, something about him, how his game translates. It's just never really popped for me. Like, as an off-ball player, I think he can attack closeouts functionally again, and he can use touch in the intermediate areas. So I like that component, but 
if you aren't like a movement shooter, is he like going to be like a secondary handler? Is he going to make great decisions? I think his passing is actually okay. Like he can play yeah. summon pick and roll. He's he made some okay reads last year. I thought, frankly, like he they were mostly to the dive man. You see that a lot from wings, but he's a wing. I mean, it's, it's not like he's a combo guard or, or like a point guard. So I, I get it. I, I think if everything hits for him, he is the player that you're just you're describing. I just I don't know. I still look at him and say, what does he really do well? Like it's kind of like PJ for you. The question you asked, it's like. He's a wing, though. That's I guess that's the difference. Is it's more of a positional yeah. scarcity argument, but I never see him being really good at anything. Right. No, I think that that's reasonable, but the level is just lower for wings. Like, if you Fair. can do some of this, it's the same with like Kelton Johnson, right? The like Kelton Johnson is good at everything, great at nothing. But a guy that is that can play on the wing and is good at everything, great at nothing. That guy is probably a. Uh, 16 game player you know yeah i get that and we'll probably get to deandre we're gonna get deandre hunter eventually i think deandre obviously has better strengths but that's more of like what i envisioned for him is like he's good at basically everything very very good lateral agility but not really great at any one thing outside of that lateral agility right um yeah i agree with all that it's just that deandre is a lot bigger stronger uh yes better shooter right like deandre is just a much better player than Romeo Langford, like I feel like that's mean, but just is accurate. No, exactly. I, but I think that what you just described, as far as being really uh, being good at most things or capable at least, but not really great at any one yeah. thing, that's who I would consider with DeAndre more than Romeo. But if Lo- Romeo hits and he is again, he, he is a capable player in all these avenues, I, I can I can get the argument. Right, but the da- that's like accounting for the downside is why is it nineteen versus yes you know being at 13 or 14 right just because i think there is very very real downside that says romeo langford is you know out of the nba in five or six years okay all right let's move on 18 tyler hero uh wing guard type who can run off screens knock down shots fearless dude six foot six very short alligator arm six foot five wingspan um Defensively, he fights and battles, but I still have some concerns there in regard to lateral quickness. Uh, I, I mean, like, what are your overall thoughts on Hero? Is he six five wingspan? I thought he was a six three wingspan. Could be. I just threw a number on there. He very well, could be six <laughs> three. I think it is because I, I was like, you can see it on tape, but when that was at the combine, that was just one of the measurements where I was like, yeah, that makes sense, but Jesus, that's still weird to see a, a minus three wingspan. Um, I think with Hero, I think the conversation starts is what the hell do you think he is on offense? I've, I've heard some right. com- combo guard. Can you initiate your offense selectively? No, or- no, no. Okay, so not that. you're more pure wing. You're more pure wing then. Yeah, like I think he is a guy that maybe can run a secondary pick and roll for you. Like I, I have never seen him like split a pick and roll. Have you? Uh, no, I've not seen him split. Like I. He can run, like, a pick-and-roll at a reasonable level uh, and, like, get to his shot. But I just, like, I don't see him as anything more than, like, a uh, low-end secondary creator that is probably going to be a guy that you more want just running off screens and knocking down shots and using the threat of that shot to get into the paint and, uh, you know, either get to the basket or take, like, a mid-range pull-up. Because I, I do think that, like, he can do that stuff. And I think that for him... He can get to his mid-range pull-up off of a heavy closeout at a level that he can be efficient with it if it's open. You know what I mean? I think he's the best in the class at that, honestly. Yeah, his one-two dribble pull-up is exceptionally good. That's where you see his pull-up numbers are actually pretty solid this year. And I think a lot of those are coming off the settings where but he here, can just... Here, 
blow by Here's a hard close. Go ahead. Like you have to be the best in the class at that to make it efficient at the NBA level. Yes. You know what I mean? Like you genuinely have to be top three in your class at uh, being like a two dribble pull up shooter from the mid range. Otherwise, that's just not a shot you want to take. Like I have concerns about that for Kevin Porter, to be honest. And like I like Kevin. Kevin's upside, at least, more than I like Tyler's. But, uh, like, Tyler, I think his floor is just much, much higher than Kevin's because I feel great about him running off screens. I feel great about him knocking down shots. I feel great about the mentality. I like the way he fights. Like, there's there's just real value to what Hero brings to the table. I definitely buy the shot. I mean, if you're just starting fundamentally at what he can do off the catch, I think he has elite touch. Maybe the best in the class as far as that goes. You don't shoot over 90% from the line, and he was incredible on runners this year. I, I think that he's going to be a high-level shooter off the catch. I'm not as sold I, I would say movement. Cam Johnson won Tyler Hero 2, probably. I would choose Cam Johnson based on how functional his shot is. He's more of the movement guy for me. He's someone who can run off a double from NBA 3, not even fully set, and knock down a shot over DeAndre Hunter. Like I don't think right. anybody else in this class can make that shot. And I don't think Tyler Hero can make that shot right now. So I'm not sold on the floppy stuff. He can do it. But he's more of like it doesn't happen as quickly as Cam Johnson. He's not like that kind of like hop into it, square off motion yet. He might become that. So I think there's some upside there if you utilize him that way. But he's not JJ Redick as far as like the the half turn in air. He doesn't do like no, the Fletcher McGee yeah. stuff. So yeah, so I, I do buy the shot and I do buy the one dribble, one two dribble pull up to an extent. Of course, like you said, he's gonna have to be really efficient at that. But he, again, he has really good touch and he's really naturally good. I think he can run some pick and roll. Um, his handle isn't super deceptive, but it's actually a little bit better than he gets credit for, as is his playmaking for others. Like, I think he can make reads. Um, yeah, he, he's, I agree made, with that. he's made some decent, but it's like where my concerns are no first step, really. He's not going to really blow past you and get to the rim and finish explosively, which is why I downgrade his on ball creation. He really is just going to have to shoot. If he's going to be this combo guard, let's just explore this for a second. If he's going to be that, I think he's going to have to be someone who really puts pressure with his pull-up from beyond NBA 3, opens up these other opportunities, and kind of warps the defense. Do you feel relatively confident in his pull-up 3 from you know NBA range beyond? Whenever he's like walking around a screen, basically, and someone like goes under a screen, sure. Uh, it, like okay. If that was the case. Um, like I, I think that when he has enough time to really set his feet, yes, I feel good about him knocking down shots from NBA range. Uh, it's like you said, whenever he really starts to have to like sprint off of stuff that worries me, like the difference between him and Carson Edwards as a shooter right now is that Carson can sprint, stop, pop, uh, hero, I think is not, he's not as fast as Carson first and foremost. Um, but B like he needs to take that split second to stop and he's young like he's still 19 years old like there's time for him to figure this out uh and i think that's why he's a little bit better of a prospect than carson as well as the size and the ability to guard up the lineup a little bit but i do uh think that that's the development that's next for him he needs to be able to like run off of screens and knock down shots not just like kind of run off of the screen slow down knock down a shot like i was talking about this earlier i did one shining podcast earlier so you should go listen to that um and we were talking about carson edwards and we were talking about stephen curry mark and i went out um and watched game three together with the nba finals as well and the thing we were just commenting on was like that like shots that Stephen Curry makes the ones that are most impressive to me are the ones where he comes off of like a double pin down screen and has to like turn his hips either in midair or has to turn them like as he's landing uh, like 
as he's landing, uh, coming off the screen, catching, and then like knocking down shots or go, going up for the shot. Like that stuff is unbelievable to me. That, those are the highlights where I'm like, this is so much harder than what people recognize that it is uh, to adjust like that and turn your hips like that and get some sort of even remote efficiency on that shot. Yeah, getting power on those kinds of attempts is, is really difficult. And that's why I kind of asked the question is breaking down shooting to you different components and delineating Cam Johnson who can kind of do that. I think it's important, even though he's not that fast. So that, that's the problem with him is can he gain the separation getting around screens? But like he can shoot in kind of that way. And I think that's important to note when you're projecting guys and when you're trying to make system fits. Like Philly loves running their guys off floppy, of course, because they have Reddick, one of the best ever at this. Um, some guys are just more catch and shoot guys. So I think right now, Hero, he has some upside as a movement shooter, but I wouldn't put him, if we're classifying Cam Johnson as a movement shooter, I would not put him in that same class yet. Would agree with that. Um, do you have strong thoughts on Tyler Hero's defense before we move on? I will say, like, the wingspan shows up for sure. His reach does. Like, guarding like Jared Harper, for example, not even being able to extend and really contest the shot. I don't know who he really guards. Like, he fights. I can appreciate the effort. But this is a guy who Cal had to yank off of Isaiah Joe because Joe was just lighting him up. Our son, Isaiah Joe. As far as, like, running off screens and trail um, step backs... So I, I don't really know, like he's a, he's a hide guy to me, but is he good enough offensively to be worth that? That's kind of my question because I I don't think he's going to guard lead guards. Like he he has pretty good feet. He's agile. He's not very good at mirroring guys. He's not very good at keeping the ball in front and contesting. Because again, there's two problems. One, he can't keep the ball in front and stay with these pull up shooters. Two is even if he does, he doesn't have the reach to really you know capitalize on that. So is he going to defend wings? He's not defending bigger wings. That's for sure. Um, so he's basically like for me he might be a two position guy he's gonna get categorized categorized as that because of his six six height i'm not sure what position he really guards that effectively even though he tries let's move on i agree with you on all that um i'm not real like i have tyler hero at 18 like i think that he's very interesting like around where are you gonna have him uh probably a little bit later but we're arguing kind of semantics at this point <laughs> like, right I'm, I'm like it's it's close this all comes with the caveat of like we're not all super high on these guys it's just kind of people have to go at certain places oh boy and then now we get to the next guy oh goodness <laughs> we've talked about rui hachimura uh yep. you have somewhat convinced me i think that grant williams is just better than rui um like i've great sorry can, can you board. run that by me one more time please no <laughs> fuck it's like i'm talking to my fiance <laughs> love you laura um it is intriguing to me that ruby is like almost a certainty to go in the lottery like it feels like that i wouldn't say like he's dead set a hundred percent going in the lottery but i feel pretty good about the fact that i think he's gonna go in the lottery just from like speaking around the league um there are real holes here you and i have talked about Rui before i'm gonna talk about the positives and then just let you handle the negatives because i know that <laughs> there are many that you have um six eight seven two wingspan 240 pounds great first step uh a high level athlete an, a great intersection of athleticism and quickness and strength for his size and position, assuming he's going to play the four. Uh, I think that there is some upside shooting the basketball. I'm not going to say like he's a shooter right now, but 
I do think that there is some upside because he has actual touch. Defensively, uh, I think that if you can continue down the road that Gonzaga did in regard to teaching him concepts and teaching him what to do on defense, which he is a smart human being, and there was a large language translation early on in his uh, American basketball career. Like, he just never defended in Japan. I think that if you can continue down that road and i think that there is upside to continue going down that road there is some defensive upside to where he's not a minus defender i think he could be an average defender who can play as an advantage scorer that can maybe knock down shots um to me the potential for mismatches that he presents uh has me place him at 17 i'm guessing that for you he is not in the top 30 for you right no he's not and even though I agree with, I think that's the reasoning why NBA guys are into him too, is that, that mismatch scoring potential, because he can take advantage of certain guys in space. Um, he's coordinated enough. He moves well enough. You noted the first step. Not like the most fluid athlete, He's but he has that power game to where he can really drop the shoulder and create separation. He can beast smaller players as well. So I think that's why you see him more highly regarded by the NBA is because of his scoring potential, his potential to create mismatches in and those Bob, settings. Like, the NBA is higher on him than I am, even, I feel like, yes. at 17, right? So tell me what the NBA is missing with Rui and why he is a much... I would say that you would classify him as a much higher variance prospect than what the NBA does, correct? I do think... It, the downside, I think I would, and I wouldn't consider the upside the same as the NBA does. I think the NBA tends to overvalue scoring and prospects that can do that with yeah. relative efficiency. So I think that's the disconnect here. And it, well, course, let's be the, clear on this too. Like his efficiency at Gonzaga was beyond oh yeah. relative. Like he was like a sixty-six percent true shooting percentage guy or something. Oh, for sure, hundred percent. Not taking anything away from his production at Gonzaga, he was excellent as far as a scorer there. I'm just saying more projection wise like yeah if you can get him in space if you can play him at the five for stints offensively i think he's going to have the athleticism advantage over a lot of fives um at the four i don't think the advantages are the same even though he has power advantages at times but depending on the matchup so i'm not as sold on his shot making i like his mid-range pull-up ability um flatter shot like we discussed can he extend that to three i think he has the touch like you noted he's going to be an elite shooter probably not um but he could be a capable one i'm more concerned with a guy, can he create for anybody else but himself consistently? And I don't know. Again, this is the main disconnect with the NBA is like the feel level. There's just a huge divide. I, I just don't buy. And I, and you know, I know you said the background stuff and great kid. If he can really learn, that that's definitely promising. But I can't I can't really invest in that when I don't know for sure, like firsthand. You know what I mean? Like I'm only going on what I see on tape, and the guy just does not make good decisions on the basketball floor. Yeah, no question. Um the passing stuff worries me about trying to figure out a role for him if the scoring stuff does not uh, translate to the extent that NBA folks certainly hope that it translates at. I mean, yeah. what do you think the upside is for him? Like, that that's a fair question, I think. Like, where are you at with, uh, like, if things really broke right for him, where would you have him? That's really fascinating. Maybe some kind of iteration. He's not as athletic as this player, but some kind of iteration of Jabari Parker-esque is like this kind of scoring four um, that is not... Okay, I guess 
if we're not talking about like 90th or 95th percentile outcome as far as his defensive understanding, his ability to actually understand defensive concepts and be a plus team defender, I- I'm much more conservative with that stuff. So I think that is kind of the archetype you look at is maybe like this this guy who's going to lapse a lot off the ball defensively, but hopefully he can get it back, you know, as this one-on-one guy on offense. I think that rarely works, but I think that's kind of the idea. Yeah. Um, yeah, definitely a guy that I've been a bit lower on throughout the process uh, as I've like gone back and like really thought about how does this work at the NBA level? Um, yeah, just, just some small concerns there. Uh, Nikhil Alexander Walker is going to be next. Uh, to me, this is like just kind of an easy discussion. Like I don't think we need to spend a whole lot of time on him. Uh, secondary playmaker, probably more of a two than a one. Uh, not the like best athlete in the world by any stretch of the imagination, but definitely dribble pass shoot in terms of skill set. Can split pick and rolls, which I think is really important from you know a guy that could be a secondary ball handler. Uh, can knock down shots off the dribble or off the catch. Defensively got better in his sophomore year. I'm not going to call him a plus defender. I think that there is just due to his size and length, the potential for him to get to average defensively but i uh i think he's just a solid role player and and like i feel good about the way that that role translates this is normally a kind of player i'd be higher on just because i think the skill level and the iq is very good like he is ambidextrous he can use both hands as a passer they ran virginia tech ran offense through him like especially when justin robinson was out this year and he has legitimate feel i I like him and i I just don't buy him as an athlete i don't buy his frame i I don't know how i think yeah yeah and this is like the this is one of the few times i'll do this but i just don't buy the first step i don't buy the burst the explosion in the lane even with the ambidexterity as a finisher he's very good at basketball and it sucks but i don't think he's going to be that switchable as far as like he competes i think his foot speed's a little bit underrated but it's the strength issue that really bothers me, and I and it's never see that materializing. I don't look at a lot of players in the league and say Nikhil like reminds me of that player. I, he's just kind of he's very weird. Yeah, now that you say that, like I'm like trying to run through my brain and think of like guys that could even be reasonable like comparisons for him. Um, I mean, is like is it like a D'Angelo Russell just without the elite level ball handling ability in terms of athleticism right yeah that's kind of interesting i didn't even think d'angelo was i don't know if he was a better athlete depends on how we define certain components of athleticism but d'angelo i think he, d'angelo is even more skilled like he's maybe, just maybe, shooting his well passing. here how about how about this his teammate spencer dinwiddie i think spencer dinwiddie has much better burst better strength at the rim i think Den, i think dinwiddie's legitimately like has legit burst like he can get to the rim can Nikhil get to the rim i th- i think that he has better burst than you do in that case then. Okay. Um, I don't think it is disaster level low. I don't think he's a great athlete by any stretch of the imagination, but I don't think that like it is, he does not have this like breaking point level of athleticism. I don't think he's under the NBA threshold athleticism. I, I think he's yeah. barely over that as far as being a useful player. I guess I just don't buy that in conjunction with the lack of strength defensively. Uh, is he going to be like a high level shooter? Like that's something we can discuss briefly is like, do you think he's going to be like this knockdown off the catch shooter? I think he's probably a 38% NBA three point shooter. Yeah. Okay. Then I can understand your position. <laughs> yeah. Off, off the catch. Like, I mean, guys like Spencer Dinwiddie shoot 33, 34% from three, right? Just because yep. they take a lot of shots off the pull up uh, as a secondary a ball handler and stuff like that. Like if you told me that Nikhil Alexander Walker shot that level from three, uh, wouldn't surprise me at all. In total, that there you is. go. Fifteen. 
Grant Williams. I'm just going to let you talk on Grant. I, I have a thing coming on Grant later this week, so, like, I'll save what I have. But, like, I'm going to let you go to town on Grant Williams just because I know that you are uh, you're a big fan. I'm, like, just the more extreme version of you. Like, you're higher on him than the NBA, and I'm even higher than that. It's just, like, you can see that with a lot of these rankings. But, again, like we've discussed in the past, a guy who is functionally strong extremely strong relative to the NBA. I think he can shed a little bit of weight, get a little bit more laterally athletic. And I think he's already, he's decent as far as space defense. I think a lot of his problems are he bites on fakes at times. And he's not like this crazy athlete, of course, but I think he moves a little bit better than he gets credit for. I think actually think he's better in space than PJ Washington consistently. And that might be kind of a hot take, but I watched all of their possessions recently. And Williams actually, I agree with you on that. Yeah. Yeah. I thought Williams actually held up a little bit better. So that's, I have him ahead of PJ by like four or five spots. We'll see. But uh, so I like that. The team defense, I actually think he overhelps at times, um, but he's very cognizant. One of the smartest players in the draft, both on the floor and off the floor, especially off the floor. <laughs> the guy's going to be like the president. Um, but I love the, the allure of him and why there's a disconnect with the NBA is, again, the touch and the shooting. He has not shown volume three-point shooting at the college level, mostly operated in the post. Kind of made him look, I think, a little bit clumsy at times with the way he was utilized, just facing up, you know, dropping his shoulder, getting to these shots. I, I buy the touch more. I know he didn't make any threes at the combine, um, but th- the fact that they looked pretty good to me and the fact he was willing to take them, I'm just going to bet on that because I think ca- catch-and-shoot ability – from three is one of the easiest skills to improve on in the league when you have touch. So that's why I'm hiring him. I love his playmaking. He's the best passing big in the class. Can really see all these different angles. As a short roll guy, if he goes to Portland, God, Portland needs to take him. Like That would just be an incredible fit next to Lillard. They've never had a guy like that that can really just read the floor. Um, and I buy the pull-up shooting like we, we talked about. He, he's actually pretty damn good at that in the intermediate area. So if he can improve a little bit athletically and, and maybe jump a, a minor tier there, I think he can potentially be an awesome play. And he's going to go lower in the draft to where you there's not a lot of risk involved. So I will say just the downsides of where NBA teams are. Um, yeah. They consider him uh, a question in regard to guarding in space and a question in regard to shooting, right? And if you believe that he's not going to guard in space and you think he's going to be like a 32% three-point shooter, then that is the concern here, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I definitely get the vantage point of that. I'm just higher on both of those qualities of his and the NBA is. Yeah, just a super high level help defender, elite level worker, elite level strength. Like I, I yeah, I buy into him more than the NBA does in general. I would say the NBA uh, is more in the like late first round range with Grant Williams. I'll go down with the ship fighting with Grant Williams uh, just <laughs> yes. to be real. As will I. And I think the work ethic, like you said, he's very young for his class, too. Like, he's not an old guy. Um, I think there's upside here and just how smart he is. I think that he's going to improve. He's already improved his game. Just looking at his stats, his free throw percentage from his freshman year to his junior year. I, I think he has gotten better as a pull-up shooter. He's gotten more fluid in the situations. I think he can be a little bit of a difficult shot maker at times, too. So there's just a lot of hidden areas to his game that I don't think we're allowed to shine at Tennessee just because of the role he was in offensively a lot of you know high post mid post stuff I think he can do more a little bit more than he's given credit for so next here uh Kevin Porter Kevin Porter's a guy I honestly have no idea where you are on him yeah I mean I don't really know where I am on him I I guess I'm lower just because I don't know what the fuck to do here like the sample is one of the weirdest samples for a prospect I can remember 
The flashes are awesome. If you watch the highlights of him, you're going to like him a lot more than people that watched every game of his, probably. Yeah, consistency, possession in, possession out, I think is a concern, let alone, like, game in, game out. Uh, Kevin's highlights are among the most insane things that you will see uh, in a draft class. Uh, He is just so ridiculously shifty he has strength to like power through guys he has the change of pace and change of direction to just go around anyone Uh, i think he's gonna shoot it uh because i think that he will work in the gym on shooting particularly and like getting to the point where he can be an elite level player off the uh live dribble game right I do worry about his feel. I think he's an underrated passer, too, as well. I actually think he can make reads and find teammates. And he's not a selfish player, either, which I think is really important for a guy that profiles as a scorer in this manner. Um, I worry about his feel for the game on defense. I worry about his feel for the game in terms of just making the right decisions. Um, There are some, like, off not off-court concerns. He's Like, I've talked to him. Um, I've done a lot of background into Kevin. He's not a bad kid by any stretch. Like, I think that if that narrative's out there, it's wrong. Um, He's definitely not a bad kid. Um, The questions with him are more about, uh, is he going to be one of those dudes that is in the gym all the time working his ass off to get better? Or is he going to be a guy that uh, you have to really push to do stuff? I, I think that the best way to go about developing Kevin Porter would be uh, hiring someone from the Seattle area to be basically his player development coach. Like you could probably do it. I mean, honestly, Kevin Porter is going to get paid $2.5 million or more next year. Uh, An NBA team I think would do well to just say, okay, we're going to hire $200,000 player development coach for Kevin Porter. And we're going to make sure that that guy gets Kevin into the gym as much as humanly possible and develops him and, uh, develops every single aspect of his scoring game and i think that if he was insulated in that manner and had a level of accountability kevin would have a chance to be one of the best players in this draft class um offensively that is at least uh, defensively i do think that he floats a little bit too often but kevin is a guy whereas like i am because like the two guys in this class that people have worries about with are kevin porter and bull bull the reason I'm not worried about Kevin Porter is I do think he loves basketball. I do think that he's a good kid that wants to be really good. I just think that I think that it's easier to develop him um, and create a situation where he can be developed uh, than it is for Bull. Yeah, I think that's absolutely fair. And I mean, everybody knows the strengths as far as he's the best individual space creator in the class. Not the best handle. He has a, a really good handle, but it's not like as controlled as it probably should be but right. how explosive how explosive he is creating separation is number one in the class like his step back ability is ridiculous problem is that's all he does on offense he he only goes to the step back he doesn't use his athleticism consistently to get by guys he has driving lanes turns them down we, hit, we didn't get to see him in enough high leverage situations i agree the passing is underrated especially in that university of washington game i was actually at that game when he started to flash that so i think there's some upside there but there's the sample is just so poor at usc we didn't get to see him run the offense he was off the ball a lot i don't love his mechanics i think a shot line coming up on his right side and kind of snapping across with a lower release point 
it's not ideal. I think that he can create the requisite separation if he's like a great shooter. I think he's going to be able to create space, so I'm not as concerned about it. It's just not something that is an affirmative as far as positive with him. Defensively, I like his playmaking instincts. I think that he can create events. Um, I, I buy his lateral agility. He's definitely got a stronger frame, which I like, but definitely the decision-making stuff at times isn't there on either side. It's just he's the biggest wild card in the class to me. I'm just more inclined to be skeptical. I guess that's my nature with these guys, but it's completely possible that he hits. And I do think that he's a better athlete functionally than he is than he showed at the combine. I think his combine numbers were yeah. pretty disappointing for a lot of people. I think he's a better athlete than that. All right, so let's move on from Kevin here and talk about my number 13 guy, which is Jackson Hayes. Uh, these guys from 13, I would say to 8, are all very close to me. We'll talk about 10, 9, and 8 on the next podcast that I do with you. But I have Jackson Hayes at 13, and I feel like that's low for the rest of the community. Would you agree? I think that people are getting lower on him. So I actually think you're probably in the middle now. It's it's about average what I've seen. So it's not that I don't like Jackson. I think it's more what is the utility of this player, I guess is where I struggle with it a little bit. Um like, I think there's a real chance he's Clint Capella. Um, he is good mobility. He has the ability to block shots. Uh, great rim runner. Legit above-the-rim finisher. I don't think he's ever going to shoot it. I'll just be honest with you. Like, I, I've, they had him run through shooting drills at his pro day, and it has, like, a goofy side spin. And it. let me say this. It will take significant work for him to become anything resembling a shooter. So what you have here is your typical low usage, rim running, potential to guard on the perimeter, um, you know, rim protecting center, right? He's still very skinny. His feel for the game is still developing. I don't think he is an immediate impact NBA player. That's all fine. I think he's going to play in the NBA for a while. I just wonder what differentiates him and makes him the guy that can play um, significant playoff minutes at this stage. Yeah, that's where I'm at too. He's a developmental player. You can see a path to some valuable upside, but I don't think it's high enough in the modern game as far as skill level. Even though I do think his handle is kind of underrated. Like he can grab and go a little bit. He never has to show this. Yeah, he's a really coordinated athlete. Like I don't think he's quite dynamic as a leaper. He's a very good leaper but he's not like crazy explosive he's more like fluid but his movement skills are, are pretty damn good for size and i think he's gonna get bigger um he's uh, got a he, good frame. he is a he's a freak show in terms yep. of just athleticism and coordination fluidity and he is ex- like for a guy that's six eleven with a 7-4 wingspan he is explosive too i think he's more fluid i don't see the high level explosion he is explosive enough but he's not he's more like Steven Adams explosive than he is like Capella. Like Capella can really shoot off the ground quickly. With Hayes, he has a huge catch radius and excellent hands. Um he, he plays basketball times like hands. He you can really see the football element with his background in his game as far as his ability to catch in traffic. He made some absurd catches this year on rolls. So I like him there. Um still he's still fine as a lob threat, but he's not someone I see as like he's not like Tyson Chandler, peak former DeAndre Jordan, that level of explosion. He's a step no. down again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, more more like Steven Adams esque, but Steven Adams is also like a great athlete. And if he can add that kind of size, that's what I look for with Hayes. But my concerns are mostly yours. The upside, the skill level, can he really shoot the ball? 
has pretty good touch, I think, honestly. But like you said, the mechanics are just way far away. So if a team feels yeah, good about that. developing those, yeah, if, if a team feels good about developing them, then maybe you take a dice roll around this area. I'd be fine with it. Uh, but I, I, again, I think it's mostly like the kind of player in the modern game. You just want a little more skill level. Yeah, I think that the thing that worries me above that is that while he does have the ability to put the ball on the deck and actually dribble a little bit, uh, he had nine assists in 750 minutes played this year. Uh, He's just a total finisher, non-passer. Like, you can short roll him, but it's short roll to put the ball on the deck and drive and finish as opposed to short roll to kick out, which tends to be the more effective strategy in the NBA. Yeah, I don't know if I trust him like making decisions on kickouts and stuff, but I do think a lot of that is a byproduct of the role at Texas. Like they just roll their bigs right into traffic every single time. We talked about this previously on the podcast. If you want to see him in a different setting, watch the first Oklahoma State game, I believe, and that's when he operated on the short roll. You saw him actually make some functional passes. I'm not saying it's a great element of his game, but I think we probably haven't seen his full capability there. I'm actually a little bit more concerned about like his high level physicality and like rebounding as a big like if he's going to be this rim running type like he just has to be an awesome defensive player like he has to be to yeah. really be a high level value you have to be like Gobert like peak Tyson Chandler if we're talking about real value in the playoffs and that's where I just don't necessarily see it yeah I mean he averaged uh, what is it 3.3 defensive rebounds per game uh, I want to say that he was actually down around like he, he might have been at like five or slightly under five per 40 minutes even. Um, that's not a great sign. It's actually... Historically it's, bad. Yeah, it's a little bit over five per 40 minutes. Um, but yeah, like that's a concern. That That's the significant concern, I think, is defensive rebounding, the ability to uh, guard, the ability to hold up... Uh, in post defense the ability to uh even just not get like blown through because he is one of these guys that has a i'd say slightly higher center of gravity like it's not like a bull bull situation but his center of gravity allows him to just kind of get blown through with lower body guys he's just so physically weak right now i think that that's going to improve though i do trust him to gain frame. the requisite yeah. strike yes so i i'm not totally worried about him that way i'm more concerned about like the physical approach to his game just not someone who i mean if he nobody plays like steven adams physicality wise but he doesn't have any of that really that innate ability to be tough like he's more of like a finesse coordinated big to me and you want him more uh a guy that's going to really you know throw guys around a little bit more i don't know if that's going to come if it's just like a late development thing with him in the game but uh if i'm going to invest in an archetype like this i would say I'd want like realizable upside to be like Nerland Snowell, who can also add strength. Like that player, I think I would probably buy into is just being like a high level defensive player. I don't think Hayes qualifies quite at that threshold. Well, I think the problem with Nerland's for me is more that he just goes wild and help defense and chases steals and blocks. Now uh, he's like he's never gotten past that point of like chasing the steal or chasing uh, the block and getting out of position in regard to defensive rebounding. Uh, I think that is the biggest problem with Nerlens now. Like the, we're, we're past the point of potential with Nerlens now. You know what I mean? Yeah, I'm just saying as, as a prospect, I think Nerlens was just his movement skills were incredible, his fast hands. Like there are yeah. so many elements to his game that if I'm going to 
like buy a rim runner in the lottery as far as like develop this guy and view some kind of upside. I think he would have to be more convincing as a defensive prospect, and I don't think that Hayes quite quite meets that level. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, let's move on to twelve. So this is the one that you're going to be really excited about. Um, you're going to yell at me for having him this low, uh, Brandon Clark. <laughs> so I would venture. I was having a conversation about this with a good friend of the program, Chris Stone, uh, yesterday. And he said, I'm going to have Brandon Clark at like five on my board. And I told him, you know, do your thing. I mean, you're going to be considerably higher than the rest of the NBA, which is fine. Like, you know, you might be right on this, but that's a thing you should know. And I'm even worried about being higher than the rest of the NBA. And I have him at 12, but, you are more in Chris's camp. You do also have him at five, right? Or like in the top five. Yeah, I haven't narrowed down a specific spot for him yet. I just don't have a lot of strong takes at the top of this draft outside of one, of course. But he is in the top five for me. So I will give you the floor in this case and say, uh, what is it about Brandon Clark that immediately stands out to you? For someone who has like never watched Brandon Clark play, what is it about this guy that is six foot eight? has an eight foot six standing reach has a six foot eight wingspan <laughs> is 210 pounds um nominally plays center and turns 23 before the start of the next nba season that's a pretty impactful framing effect there <laughs> um well i, I know say... that i know that you're going to be extraordinarily positive on this so i'm just yes. like priming it you know no, no, no. It's definitely fair. I think that's the position of a lot of people. So I, I think that's definitely fair to frame it that way. I would say that he is an elite level functional athlete. And in this class, we don't have elite level skill guys. We don't have elite shooting that are also like two way guys. What we have is we have two elite functional athletes. We have one who's a transcendent one and we have one that is still elite. Uh, even the combine will tell you this information. There's only been two guys six foot eight or above that have been 90th percentile in the combine in lane agility, max vert and standing vert. That is Brandon Clark and Joel Ballenboy. <laughs> and one doesn't have the skill level to play functionally on an NBA floor. So we're talking about historically elite as far as testing goes, but you see all of those elements on the floor. He's so quick off the floor as far as leaping ability, one of the best leapers as far as that goes, and he compensates for his size by playing bigger than it. I think he's physical. Uh, he can really move on the floor. He's got great reactive athleticism as a backline rim protector, great timing. So he has a bunch of components defensively, that are going to get pushed aside because of his size. And I, there are concerns as far as his reach. Um, there's certain plays like he contained Admiral Schofield in isolation, for example, absorbed the blow because he's got better core strength than he gets credit for. Tried to contest and Schofield just shot right over the top. And there's certain times where he just can't get to balls because he doesn't have the reach. And that's a concern. He's also not the best technical defender on the perimeter. As far as footwork, um, closeout angles, that's still a work in progress. But he has everything I look for as far as movement skills, reactive athleticism off the ball, high-level team defender, communicator, all of that. So for me, it starts with defense. And I think it's going to translate. I think that he's getting a lot of Jordan Bell comparisons. And he's just way fucking better than Jordan Bell ever was. I was actually going to follow up with that uh, immediately. Can you explain? He is 100% better than Jordan Bell. Like, there's just not really a debate about that. But I, I would just like for you to explain why he's better than Jordan Bell. Absolutely. I think, first of all, team defense, he's much more aware consistently. You saw Jordan Bell lapse in the finals, for example, the other night. Um, 
I think he was guarding Ibaka, just completely froze off the ball and allowed a, a dunk. Like Clark is more alert in those settings. But I think the main difference and the difference that people are going to wonder about is, again, I think Clark can actually score. I don't think he's a guy like Bell who everything has to be at the rim. Like Bell can't shoot and he can't finish in the intermediate area, like basically at all. He didn't have that flip shot last night, but that was more of an outlier. Like Clark legitimately finishes everything around the rim. He's like top three of the last, I think, 18 or 19 years for prospects that are four fives in two point percentage at over 70 percent. And those aren't dunks. A lot of the times they're runners. Like he finishes everything because he can elevate with his bounce. He's got incredible touch there. I think that's a huge shot. We even see that with Siakam in the playoffs. Like, and I know yeah. Siakam has better length extension, but being able to finish and like eat up space and actually put the ball in the basket is huge. Like, if you can't threaten outside of being like a drop off dunker guy, it's really tough to have that kind of value. So, I think that that not only portends to Clark's scoring ability, where he's a much more functional athlete than a guy like Jordan Bell. Like, he can adjust in the air. He is very, very coordinated as far as finishing like that. Bell never really had those instincts as far as scoring, which Clark has. And then also, I think, and this is the bigger stretch that not a lot of people are going to buy. I just think Clark's touch portends to some shooting upside. I think that he's a decent bet to shoot. We've seen guys like Jeremy Grant in the past, not shooters in college. Siakam wasn't even a shooter in college. Those guys, over time, can develop catch-and-shoot threes. And that's kind of where I'm at with analyzing prospects is I think catch-and-shoot three ability is one of the easiest skills to teach if you have touch. So that's where I come down on it. So I think that you mentioned, I I just want to kind of go point by point on this. Um, So you mentioned the ability to score in the mid-range. I agree with you. Uh, Brandon's floater game is really good. The big thing with it, and the reason that I'm less concerned about it, uh, about the length issue on offense, is that he has the ability to just elevate over everyone. His leaping ability is unique for a player that is his size. Um, the fact that he can just, he has like a, what is it? A standing vertical of like 31 or something like that. Uh, that's not, yeah. Like that's not normal for someone that is his size. So it allows him to get contested less often in spite of the length. Uh, he also has good touch just in those areas, and I think he's going to be fine there. The big difference for me between him and Jordan Bell is that Jordan Bell was always a chronic overhelper and like far, far over aggressive uh, defensively, even in college. And that has continued onward into the NBA. I have someone who really liked Jordan Bell. I had Jordan Bell probably at like 20, 22, something like that on my board in the 20, what was that, 2017 draft? In Jordan's case, right? Uh, yes. So I think that where I screwed up on Jordan was missing that aspect of it. It was something I knew at the time, but I figured that's fine. Like they'll get him in a good defense and he'll figure it out. Uh, he hasn't figured it out yet, despite playing in a defense where overhelping is honestly like a part of the defense right like they're comfortable like blitzing guys and uh doubling guys and then leaving open particularly centers and power forwards that can't shoot like if if jordan was going to work in any scheme i think it was going to be golden states and it just hasn't worked like he can't play at this level defensively right like we think that's fair I don't know how you can trust him right now. I'm not sure. Like, I thought he was better his rookie year um, in high leverage situations. Like, I agree. Oh, with that. Like you saw that, like you saw last night. I, I don't know how Kerr can really trust him to make the right decisions. I agree with that. 
Um, Brandon is not like that. Brandon is has a you in innate ability to time when to help and when not to help. I think he'll be better in a wider variety of defenses. Uh, I think yep. his timing contesting and blocking shots is better. I think his mechanics for contesting at the basket are better. Now, Brandon, again, is 20 pounds lighter than what Jordan is. And I think there is a real concern about him just standing his ground and holding up just straight up. Like, I think that that is a real worry. Uh, do you fall into line with that? I think in certain matchups, absolutely. I mean, it, it depends on how he's utilized. There's not a lot of real power fours in the NBA, and I think he's a four. I think maybe if you're looking at him as a five, this is a much more effective argument because he's not going to be able to guard these bigger behemoths. There's, I'm not going to contest that at all. He's like athletic Taj Gibson, I think. Yeah, I just yeah that that's not bad. I do think again, Clark is a much more functional athlete on offense. Like he can drive and he can actually like contort his body in ways that guys like Taj can't do that. And same with again Jordan Bell. And I I still think that's the biggest difference is like Clark can actually score, and that's the part that's not getting enough credit is that touch, that ability to finish at different angles. It's just very big when you talk about projection. If he couldn't do that, I'd be much lower on him because then you look at a situation and you're like, okay, he's going to hang out in the dunker spot and like just be a lob catcher. I don't think that's – you can't really do that. You'll get schemed against you, – you know, you'll be like a Siakam situation but like far more extreme because Siakam can actually score. But like you have to utilize him as the screener. If you play over and drop, then how is he going to finish over Brooke Lopez at the rim? So, again, I just think that Clark's ability to finish at different angles, the touch is really going to help him a lot. So I, I think that the biggest key here, and I, you would agree with this, is that you need to play him next to a center who can shoot, right? Yeah. Yes. Like that. I think that that is the biggest difference in terms of building like a conceptual board um, versus like a board for a specific team. Like if I was Minnesota, I would have Brandon Clark probably at number six, I think, on my board. I would have him below Zion, John Morant, RJ. I'd have him below DeAndre Hunter, and I'd have him below Jarrett Culver. So I would have Brandon at six for Minnesota. For a team like Oklahoma City, where Steven is their incumbent center, Steven can't shoot outside of six feet, operates a lot in the same spaces that you would have Brandon um, offensively, just because Steven does a lot of that short roll stuff, a lot of those slip shots. I don't think that you can really play him in that role like i just straight up don't so i think it's a great point as far as team context and clark being in part a context dependent player and that is why building a big board is kind of hard in a vacuum is because it's hard to factor in these concepts but they're important just because someone's a context independent player but not good does that mean they're better than someone who needs a specific fit to really optimize their situation? So I completely follow as far as Oklahoma City and valuing him more next to a Carl Anthony Towns. I think that's an awesome fit. Actually, I think with Clark's range, it's kind of interesting because Atlanta has two picks in that range. I'm not sure if he's an ideal fit next to John Collins, but I think they could they could definitely run off of in, in that situation. Like Clark would be fine, you know, diving to the rim in their double eye for example. So that makes some sense to me. Boston next to Horford's another fit. But uh, but I think you're on the right train of thought here as far as you have to have a specific fit to really optimize him, at least to get that safety, right? Because we don't know if he's going to shoot 
that's more of an experimental thing. So if you have a big who can, I think it's easier to really take the dice roll on him. Yeah, uh, I agree. Uh, so you generally, in a vacuum, have him somewhere in your top five. My, my thing is that I think that the reason I have him a little bit lower at the end of the day is that I think it's a little bit easier to find big men who can defend at a high level and probably won't be high level scorers. Like the upside here is what that he turns into Siakam, right? That's probably it. Something, some iteration of that. Um, and becomes like this ridiculous advanced scorer and becomes this unbelievable or becomes like a potential shooter from the corners. And then we go from there. Uh, and like, obviously a very strong defender because he's so athletic. Exactly. I mean, if he becomes that, like his upside being that, then yes, he's worth a top five pick. But the median outcome of him, I think, is a little bit easier to find than a lead guard or a wing at the end of the day. That's fair as far as positional value. I just don't know. This, of course, factors in how you feel about the other prospects and them meeting their realizable upside as well. So I trust Clark's floor as like a a defense. I think he's going to be awesome defensively, I think, for all the reasons we discussed. Uh, Maybe he's not. I think he's smarter than Siakam, like honestly, on both sides of the floor. Like Siakam has better margin for error with the length. They're not that similar. Siakam's more fluid, of course, with the the finishes over extending and stuff like that. So there's differences, but... Again, I just look at this class, and this is an indictment of the class. It's I don't know if anybody else outside of, of course, Zion, you can make an argument for Morant. This is why I have Morant, too, in my board, even though I'm not like as sold on him as like an ironclad prospect. But there's, a, there's some variance with this class overall. I don't look at anybody and say, I know for a fact that you know he has a, a very high percentage chance of meeting that ceiling outcome, which is why I'm more willing to roll the dice on, on Clark higher and just hope he falls into a good situation. God damn it. Quat Noy pulled his name from the early entry list, which means I have to do some work on the last 20 guys on my big board. Quat Noy's killing me, man. Never ends. This is, this <laughs> is where I'm at in my life. Um, probably still add DeMarcus Simmons into my top 120, but that's fine. Um, okay. So the last guy we're going to talk about is Nasir Little. Uh, I have Nasir Little at 11. My idea here is that, and the reason I have him over Clark is upside related. Uh, six six seven one wingspan, very clear role as a uh, defense, like two way wing. If he can figure out how to defend off ball, and if the shooting looks as real as it does in pre draft workouts. So, like, where are you at basically on Nasir? I have a question for you relative to Clark. What is the reasonable percentage chance you think that Little has... Okay, let's reframe the question. What's the likelihood do you think Little is as good a defender as Clark is at the NBA level? 30, I would say. 30%. I think it's like 5% or less. Like, I don't like Clark's a better athlete than little is laterally. He's okay. So here here would be the reason I'm going to put it higher is that I think that the odds are a little bit higher than what you're willing to give that Brandon just might not be able to play like on an NBA floor offensively at times. Okay. That's fair. 
Like he just I, might I not, when you, it's like just in terms of like not being able to get on the floor. Okay. Yeah, absolutely fair. I, I'm just saying from like a value standpoint, when they're both on the floor, I think that Clark is there's I, I don't think any reasonable chance that Littles is good at a defensive player as Clark is. He, he, I just don't like his avenue would be athleticism on the ball and Clark's better there. He doesn't have Little's length, but Clark utilizes his length better most of the time. And I think, again, I think Little is a little bit rigid as an athlete. We've talked about this before. If he can get trimmed down and he can get that agility back and be like an actual wing stopper, I think I'll I'll reevaluate my take here. But I do think right now he's a little he's not like even as fluid moving athletically as like a Seiku type. Like he's just not that he's a little bit robotic. Yeah, I agree, and that's why I have uh, Seku a little bit higher, which, by the yeah. way, Seku's probably the guy that is most comparable to Siakam, we would think, right? I think so offensively. I think right. the combination yeah, yeah, yeah. of the flu- the fluid athleticism and like the, the extension finishes. Right. Um, so defensively with Little, I think what you're hoping for is that as he gets within NBA strength and conditioning program, they can figure out how to perfect his body basically um and combine the strength in a functional way with the quickness that we saw at lower levels and then additionally like i just do think nasir is going to shoot it at the next level like he's a good kid he works hard um there is a base of talent there shooting wise i'm not super concerned about the jump shot really and i am a hundred percent with you on that i think his jump shooting in college was it's not indicative of his potential. I think that he even tweaked his release point a little bit to the side of his head. I was a big fan of his shot at AAU levels. I thought his shot yeah. looked great, honestly. Well, I was buying it. One thing it. that I think it is worth mentioning, too, he is a much better shooter off pull-up still than he is off the catch because he just gets naturally better leg bend. He gets um, naturally better arc on the ball uh, whenever he's shooting off the dribble because he's just that's what he's used to, I think. He's not used to being without the ball in his hands. And... That was an adjustment for him this year, and he's still trying to figure that out, I think. Yeah, and I'm buying, like, we'll talk about Seiku in, in the future. I think both of them are kind of underrated as shooters. I'm, that, that's not my area of concern with Little at all. I, just cutting the bullshit, I think, frankly, does he know how to play basketball? And that, at this point, is kind of a big question mark because he was behind mentally all year. He admitted this at the Combine. He's a great kid. I think he's going to get whatever he has out of himself. I think he's going to be. I think he's going to work. I think he's going to put in the time. I just can't bet on guys that don't have that natural feel. It's like his upside is completely tied to him being a shot maker if you look at guys in the league yeah. if we're talking like elite level upside those guys don't have to be the greatest field guys if you're just like a dynamic shooter off the dribble like that's his avenue to really getting that elite level right i would agree with that um the downside here is just completely and totally feel for the game um especially on defense like he was out of position far too regularly uh this year on defense yes absolutely i mean the reactiveness wasn't there the processing he looked lost the entire year and for some of it i understand i mean catching up in college it's tough but not a lot of natural feel on how to defend off the ball i think that's just a fair assessment at this point and that's kind of concerning because i mean a lot of people are talking about him as a four and yes he has the reach he can kind he can jump pretty well but is he gonna have the timing he's gonna be able to be this weak side rim protector i think as a team defender right now he's kind of a hard sell if, if you're not trying to sell him as like the switch guy yeah i would agree with that um yeah i think we're just like talking about potential two-way wings they are incredibly valuable at this level and you have to buy into him as a person to figure this out because there's a reason that you had him at number two coming into the year and i had him at number three 
right? Yep. He was a potential two-way wing who could create his own shot and defend and just kind of do a lot of different stuff, right? I think that that ceiling probably doesn't exist, but and I think I think it's because of the off-ball defense and the lack of passing ability. I think those yes. are the two real concerns that have limited his upside now from super high level to just like, hey, this this could be a problem. I would also add to that his handle and like his natural coordination with the ball is not great. Like, and I think it could maybe improve a little bit. That kind of ties into what we talked about with athleticism in general. But I don't think his handles high level. Like, even with someone like Kawhi, his handles insanely good. Like you see it with these guys at lower levels; they already have that. And Little doesn't have that that natural shake, that shiftiness. He kind of just barrels into guys. He doesn't have that agility to, like, step around. He's mostly, like, a a straight-line guy right now as far as two-foot pop. He can really elevate in those situations. But is he going to be coordinated enough as an athlete to kind of navigate these spaces? I think his best shot, honestly, is to be able to use his strength and be able to drop a shoulder and then shoot over the top of guys. If he can be a high-level shot maker, which is really, really hard to bet on just because that's a high threshold – that's how I think he can vault from this area to a little bit higher in the class. But I don't think it's going to be through feel. It's going to have to be through being a difficult shot maker. Yeah. And at the end of the day, I think that just due to the physicality and the frame, his margin for error is just greater than Brandon Clark's. Like he plays a position that is harder to find. He has better positional size and he has just more potential to shoot it like realistically um his shot is further along so that's the reason i think i have him over brandon clark is i just think that there is slightly more margin for error for him to figure things out and then additionally if he does become this like you know shooter off the dribble who can get his shot the up like the upside is just greater than what brandon brings to the table i think yeah, I just don't really think the upside is realizable, really. I, I don't see that really from Little as an athlete overall. And it's just harder for me to bet on that. You know what I mean? Like, I get what you're saying. Again, I still think that Clark, from a defensive standpoint, I, I just think that that is the best skill set of any of either one of these guys. Not necessarily just floor, but also yeah. ceiling. I think Brandon Clark can beat, like, an all-NBA kind of team defender. I'm not sure if he's going to be, like, the, the elites just because of the length but i think consistency wise i think he can be that it, it's possible at least like second team maybe all defense or something i don't see an avenue for little to reach that threshold on either side of the ball yeah i would agree with that i think that's fair i mean like here's a question who is a guy in the nba that has brandon clark's dimensions nobody He's Clay, he's Clay Thompson with like elite level athleticism, and that's really what I, this is a piece I'm writing right now. It's there is nothing to compare Brandon Clark to in the league right now. There, there's nobody. He's so unique. It's like right. I get it. There's nobody to look at and be like, oh, that's an archetype. It's like there's nobody like him. Right, and I think that that's what's hard for a lot of NBA people to wrap their heads around, which is fine. Totally. Um, you know that happens and it's tough, but like you, you can figure out a way to do that. Like plenty of unique guys come into the league and make it work. But I think that right now I'm just a little bit... And like I said, like there are probably half the teams in the league where I would have Brandon considerably higher than where I have Nasir. Maybe, maybe 10 teams in the league where I would have Brandon considerably higher than where I have Nasir. Whereas there are probably only two or three teams in the league where I would have Nasir considerably higher than Brandon. I just think that the floor here 
while they're, I mean, like, Nasir couldn't play this year at an effective level, basically. Yeah. But I do think that just the physical frame that he possesses is harder to find when mixed with, like, real NBA athleticism. Because Nasir does. Nasir will be at least, like, an above-average NBA athlete. Would you agree with that? He might not yes. be, like, an elite-level athlete, but he'll be an above-average one. Um at six foot six with a seven foot one wingspan with like a super high level level motor as well. I think that that just general mix of skills and like physicality and body type will make him have a slightly higher floor, I guess, than what I think of with Brandon. I think that Little's going to get every opportunity to succeed in conjunction with his shooting upside. That's a really good point too. That's a really good point. So that's why I think it's smart to bet on him because teams are going to give him a shot. He's a high pedigree guy who is an outstanding kid. Like, I can't say that enough. We talked about that on the combine. He's like my favorite personality in the class and teams are going to love that. And I, I totally understand it. I, I just, I guess from a philosophy standpoint, like I'm about good basketball players. If little was that I thought he was at lower levels, he didn't show that at UNC. If he can turn a light on somehow and be more effective, I, I'm totally with that. I hope he. I hope he succeeds. And the, like this is the difficulty with doing a board ranking like this. I think the important part is just bringing to the surface all of the different vantage points, all of the discussion yeah. points to actually talk about. Like it's it's largely semantical, like you said, with contextual boards with Clark's fit. But uh, I, I certainly understand the argument. I just think that I think that too often the guys like Little are perceived as these safe guys because of their physical dimensions and. Or any coach is really going to trust him on the floor to make choices. Like, I think that is the right. That's the drawback, right? Because he's going to get shots. But how like teams gave up on Dennis Smith really quickly. You know what I mean? In different position, but like ultra athlete. Like, how long are teams going to roll with these guys? And, and he's going to get second. Well, here, third here, here's what I, I would flip that on its head for you, too, because Brandon Clark is unique, right? Unique guys tend not to get like a lot of bites at the apple. You know what I mean? Especially oh, oh, ones that are that, 23. 100%. Yeah, I, that's why I, I bought into your initial point about, I yeah. think that Little, from a safe, from like a, a multiple bites at the apple thing, Little has the advantage over Clark 100%. Yeah. Um, it's going to take a, a, more of a s special situation for Clark to really get that, but I'm just more confident that Clark can seize that initial opportunity, if that makes sense. Yeah, and I think that's reasonable. I mean, one guy is 19 and the other guy is going to be 23, right? Exactly. Um, just from a maturity standpoint, that's probably going to happen. Um I think that's all I've got on these guys. Um, Brandon's at least it, it, Brandon is unique in so many like ways. He's unique in almost every way as a prospect. And I wish that I had him higher because like I've talked to him, like he is a elite level person, uh, super emotionally mature, super um, smart, like plays with a high level of intelligence, plays with great feel for the game. Uh, I just, can't quite get there because I think that Brandon is probably the most fit dependent player in this draft. If he finds the right fit, I see a world where his upside is where you have it for sure. But I also just generally do have like real worries about where it goes. Like to sure. me, the best, the best place for him would be Minnesota followed by like, if he would fall all the way to 18 in Indiana, like if you could put him next to miles Turner and put him next to Demonis Sabonis, like, and just let him go full Thaddeus young, like that'd be really fun to me. 
Yeah, that's another really interesting fit. I didn't consider that one in the range before, but he could absolutely be there. I, I totally buy your point, and this comes to a philosophy difference a, a little bit as far as like rankings and, and shit like that. I just... I, I don't know. I'm a little bit defensive about Clark in some aspects just because now you have like more of the NBA only guys coming on Twitter and like this is some six eight kid with a six eight right. and a half wingspan and it's like, dude, you've never seen this fucker play. Like he's incredible. Like he and like the whole warp Twitter thing and all of the BPM, I get it. He was like incredibly good numbers wise, but like for those of us like you and myself who watch college basketball this year. Like there weren't five better players to watch than Brandon Clark. There probably weren't three better players to watch. Right. Like, he's just really good. And here's what I will say too. So I've talked to like three or four teams uh, in regard to like how Brandon rates out in their analytic models. Right. So a kid that turns 23 before the season that is six eight with a six eight wingspan. Like you would think that that guy gets downgraded significantly, and I would. he's still somewhere like. I think the lowest I've heard is 18. Like he's most guys like have him like in the 10 to like 14 range from what I was told. So, or like, you know, I guess I'm like small sampling in that I'm only talking to, you know, 12 to 14% of the NBA, but yeah, like Brandon Clark has a very real statistical Avenue um, and very real statistical upside that I think is probably going to get, lost in the shuffle just because people assume uh that his age and frame would hold him back there yeah i'm glad you sussed that out he really does like historically i think in the draft i said this before but i think a lot of us are bad at contextualizing information and like putting it in respect to prospects over the last 18 years and i think what the the college season that clark just had was one of the best we've seen in a long time like it, it came in the same year that we saw the best college season, <laughs> arguably that we've had. I, I would have been was, legit, very fascinated to see who, if anyone would have made the case for Brandon Clark as <laughs> National Player of the Year if Zion didn't exist. Because I feel yeah. like the people that are very analytically inclined probably would have made that case. And I wonder if if Zion didn't exist, if Clark's just natural ability and production would be discussed more. Yeah, that, that's a really fascinating um, thing to address. And I've always given him the benefit of the doubt. So for me, he's always been like, I thought he was the second best player in college basketball last year, but I, I totally agree. I think that maybe that becomes more widespread now, especially if there wasn't a Zion. Yeah. Uh, all right. Let's uh, let's get out of here. Cole, tell the people <laughs> where they can find your work at the step in. If you aren't sick of the Brandon Clark dialogue, I will have, a piece out maybe tomorrow maybe the next day definitely the next two days about him and kind of suss this out in, in greater detail this argument for him um we have new content every day i'm going to update the rankings probably sometime this weekend so those will be up live for the draft and we have the step in podcast with ross homan and mike gribanoff check that out as well and continue to listen to this podcast yeah uh go to the athletic i'll have at least five things up before the draft uh, including a mock draft, probably an Intel piece, um, just a few other random things. Uh, go rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast. Uh, yeah, that's about all I got. So until next time, we'll talk soon. Bye.